1: It's October and the Annual Observation of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We talk to Echo Associates about the latest advances in cancer treatment service and a cancer survivor on her personal cancer journey. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Every October, we raise awareness about breast cancer in the hopes of educating more people about the disease and to find out the latest treatments available to fight it. Echo Associates is an independent cancer treatment organization based in Norwich who specialize in cutting-edge treatment for all types of cancer and helps many people with cancer diagnosis here in Eastern Connecticut. And apart from the treatment, it's also about hearing people's personal cancer stories as well. To help those living with cancer and those who care for them better understand the disease and how it affects everyone differently. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. Susan Johnson, Director of Research at ECHO Associates and Janina Wagner, a breast cancer survivor and uh, somebody who receives, continues to receive treatment here at ECHO. To you both, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Janina, I want to turn to you first. As a breast cancer survivor, personal stories are something which We love on the podcast, they're very important. And of course, we're talking about an incredibly important situation here, your health and the fact that you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you just walk us through that journey from the point of when you were told you Mm -hmm. you had a diagnosis of breast cancer?
2: I'd had a mammogram in December of 2021 and everything was fine. And in February, I think it was, I was in the shower doing a self-examination and I felt this big, grainy bang. And I thought, this is not good. This is definitely not good. And twice they had called me out of mammograms to have an ultrasound. Nothing ever showed up because I have triple negative cancer and it's lobular. And my breasts were dense breasts. So I'm like a big advocate of get an MRI if you have dense breasts. Please get an MRI. It's not showing up on these things. And I was stage 3C. What does that mean? terminal is four right yes stage four so i'm knocking the at the door police.
1: so just talk us through obviously you know you receive unfortunate news that uh, you know you've got mm-hmm. a diagnosis of breast cancer just talk us through you know what happened then because obviously you're still here thankfully mm-hmm. you're still having treatment which of course is great and we'll be getting onto to that in a little mm-hmm. bit it's not a death sentence there are options there are treatments so talk us through some of that and why you came here to echo
2: I almost didn't, because I didn't know, because I worked here for 20 some years, and I thought, oh, I'd want everybody to know my business and stuff. But it was so dire. It was so serious. I knew the people here I could trust as friends, and that they were not going to let me down for anything. And they haven't. And it was closer to home, and my husband could be here. So I decided to stay here and and go to Dr. Yang.
1: So talk to us, obviously, we don't want to get into too much, obviously, yeah. personal stuff because obviously that is personal to you, but say, treatments were available. Just talk to yeah. us, you know, in general terms. I mean, how many treatments and what type of treatments have you sort of uh, received? a
2: long time. I've received what, a- what is ACT, really? Yes. Is that what you call it? Yes. For several months, lost all my hair and my sense of taste and swelled up mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere then after that I went to to I think I went to radiation and then to Zolota so the radiation because it was so the cancer was so deadly was a really heavy radiation it just crisped me up it was like yellow scabs, thick scabs which was hard but I tended to to be okay, the girls there are wonderful and um so I went to that. When we finished that, then I went on an oral, which was the Loda. And you can tell by my hands. The skin came. This isn't bad. This is really good because I've been off for a while. But literally shredded off my hands and my feet, and they swelled up. So you, it was very difficult and very painful some, at some times. And still, even though I've been off for a little while, my, the balls of my feet are like feels like they're crunchy. There's there's a solid thing in the ball of my foot. And my toes are numb. And my fingers are numb. So I drop a lot of stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Thankfully, my husband is there. So that's kind of through. So I did the Zolota. Then we came off of that. I think yes. that's when it was. she thought it was gone. And it was. For probably four months. And then all of a sudden, yeah. God bless Signatera. Because all of a sudden, we see this little increase. And they can find it way before anybody else. We can't do anything about it because it has to show up on something that's bona fide <laughs> legal. So, but we knew it was somewhere. So Dr. Yang could take precautions, I could take precautions, and that kind of thing. And it's just kind of been an up and down since then because many of my mastectomies, on I had two different cancers, triple negative on the side and a very... And, estrogen yeah, a, a very easy one over here. Signatera came through, and we watched that and just waited for it to come to a level where we could actually start some kind of treatment. And because Zalota had worked so well, she tried Zalota again, sure enough, brought it down to zero for a couple of months. And then little by little, it's creeping, and because of the radiation, the stitching on that breast, because it makes it, the skin really like paper and the breast is very different than the other one because this is soft this one's very rigid and it just stands (laughs) wherever it is so and it can be a pain in the neck but so it kept it kept opening up believe it or not and the physician's assistant would i'd go in she'd cut some of the bad skin off and stitch it up and finally she said I think we need to think of something else because this is not working. The radiated skin is way too dry. So two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had a double operation. One doctor was in the back taking a piece out of my back to place here and the other physician's assistant was in the front taking everything out of the bad breast. So we're starting all over here, but it's working really well so far.
1: So you're having what, reconstructive surgery? Again, yeah. How do you feel about all of this? I mean, you look, I just want to like, paint. I, well, of course, I just want to paint a picture for the listeners, because yeah. um, although we will put up some pictures of you, you look amazing. Uh, you look in glowing health here. I have a you, wonderful husband. <laughs> well, and you're obviously <laughs> mentally strong, because this stuff I, takes it out of you, doesn't it? I mean, people it does. don't realize it does. how much this takes it out of you. Oh, yeah,
2: you go to pieces all the time, but then it's like, okay, you're fine, just get on with it, and... And keep going. That's just who I am. And I, for some strange reason, I don't have a lot of pain. I had, I mean, I might have discomfort where it feels tight or something, but I haven't had pain through any of all those operations. Any pain.
1: Which is absolutely amazing, Mm -hmm. isn't it? I want to bring in Dr. Johnson now. Uh, Susan, thanks for joining us as well, Director of Research here at ECHO Associates. I'm guessing Janina's story is not uncommon, is not unusual for women who receive a diagnosis of breast cancer.
0: That's correct. And as you know, we have a active research department here at ECHO, which is really well supported by all the clinicians here. Mm. And every single patient that comes to ECHO for treatment prior to them seeing the physician review review their chart and see if they're eligible for any clinical trials. And we did that with Jana. Unfortunately, Jana had two separate primaries. (laughs) One was hormone positive and one was not, which really knocks her out of clinical trials. So what she's talking about with this Signatera, we have the newest technologies that we are able to use here. And this technology will originally take the tumor, and blood from the patient and look and see if they can find neoantigens little proteins that they can identify from the cancer cell in the blood and then during treatment we constantly monitor this to see if we see the same neoantigens and as jenna said hers dropped down to 0 for an extended period of time and we saw it rise and we see this rise before any radiographic changes So we waited and did did imaging and did see that there was some progression. And we are constantly doing this now with uh, Jana to see if we're seeing a recurrence of the disease.
1: Talk to us, if you would, Doctor. As you say, you are Director of Research here at ECHO, which is an amazing organization here in Norwich, Connecticut. Clinical trials is one of the, your other big things. You're able to apparently bring these on quicker than many other you know, cancer organizations. Talk to us about that and how you manage to do that. And why is it so important?
0: It is probably the most important thing, and I'm extremely passionate about it, is that patients should be able to get the most cutting-edge therapy in their own community. We have sent many patients to tertiary care, like Dana-Farber or MSK, negotiating the transport, the finances, the hotels, is very difficult. So if we can offer this treatment in their own community, we do. So we usually have about 30 clinical trials going at a time. We have treatment trials and the treatment trials are trials that we can do in the community, only require patients to be in the office for eight to 10 hours for pharmacokinetics and they can get their treatments and um, be surrounded by loved ones. So we have them a broad area. We have um, virtually every solid tumor. Now we are seeing lymphomas as well. So we're really progressive with our treatment. And as you know, Cancer is evolving to have a more targeted therapy with genomics and um, receptors. We're able to make a more targeted therapy and maybe some less toxicities for patients. And um, another area that we're working with this targeted therapy is the antibody drug conjugate. And that's what we're talking to Jana about is that. We're able to use extremely potent chemotherapy, which would adhere to a receptor on the cancer cell and be directed directly into the cancer cell. So we're working with that as well.
1: So when you say that, just for clarification for the people that are listening and also for my own education, you're talking about using a powerful drug that only sees its enemy, as it were, and leaves everything else around it intact.
0: Yes. There is some leakage, so there are toxicities. I can't say there's no toxicities associated with it. But less toxicities, and we would not be able to use this drug if we did not have it attached to this antibody that goes directly into the cell.
1: And how important it sounds like a dumb question, but how important is that? because it sounds it, that sounds like a critical thing.
0: It is. You have to have a target for that antibody to adhere to so that the drug is dropped directly into the cell. We have a really rapid turnaround time with our studies and sponsors like to work with us. It's about four weeks of well, the budget and the regulatory process so that we can open these studies rapidly and offer them to our uh, patients.
1: Talk to us about that. Sorry to interrupt you. Talk to us about that because that's an important thing that I think we need to get across is that that seems really fast, I mean, compared to obviously other clinical trials. Is it? And how, how is it that you managed to do that? Because, you know, people are going to be interested in that because people, you know, are always looking for... How do I get that therapy? You know, what's available to me? They want to know options. So talk to us about that.
0: We are offered probably 10 to 15 clinical trials per week at our um, research department. And we have to look at them very seriously and open up studies where we have the population. And the feasibility has to be that the patients can be treated here in the office and that they're only here for a maximum of eight hours. So we'll look at that, look at the feasibility, make sure we have the population, make sure the safety is there. And then the next is a budgeting process. And the budgeting process is pretty standardized. Now we know how much we need for overhead, how much we need for regulatory. One of the things that we try to do is to incorporate transportation fees for our patients. As you know, it's Cancer is devastating emotionally and financially for patients, so just getting back and forth to the office. In a clinical trial, you generally have to come in much more frequently than you do for normal treatments, and the patients, we have these wonderful social service, nutritional services, infusion nurses, research nurses. Medical assistants. Um, we have nurse educators. We have a whole group of people that work with this, but we can set up most of the time transportation for the or food for the patient, and the foundation works on any of the um, household bills that the patient has that. Are interrupted with their journey here.
1: Yeah, that's another thing we want to bring up. Obviously, ECHO does have its foundation, which yeah. is, um, I understand, does amazing work mm-hmm. by way of mm-hmm. supplying so many critical other services mm-hmm. to people with uh, cancer diagnosis, as you say, from what seems like a simple thing like getting them a taxi or something, you know, to, to food. But again, as you say, These things are so critical, not only to get these people to their appointments, which I'm Mm -hmm. guessing, you know, you want to make sure they're not missing anything for consistency of care, but also to make sure that they know that, you know, it's available to them as well. Who have these sort of situations wonder, well, how am I going to afford this? Or, you know, suddenly this cost drops in their lap. So it's, it's amazing, obviously, that the foundation does offer that I just want to quickly turn back to, to Janine for a second when you were offered this latest drug you know from Echo what were your thoughts about it because you know as you say you've undergone so much and and, and, yeah, yes. and and so and, and other people I, I don't know maybe lesser people would say no I've had enough but I mean you know what were your thoughts mm-hmm. when they came back to you
2: Good. I mean, it was like, thank you. There's something to help me. Because when it was a clinical trial out of Dana Farber, I knew a young woman that had the same thing triple negative breast cancer and she was able to go on it. I couldn't because I had the tooth. And she was, she's good. She's very good. I don't even know if it's ever come back. I know she's doing very well. She's on something regularly, like a pill. So if I had the ability to do that because I couldn't during clinical trials I had two types of cancer so it was my chance to get in there and get it going
1: and how are you feeling now because like we said you look amazing you sound amazing
2: I feel wonderful I didn't get sick with the chemo I lost my sense of taste like I said and I got tired but I never got sick I don't know why
1: very fortunate i suppose Mm. it's you know different for everybody isn't it Mm
2: -hmm. one of the things
0: that i think is important is now in cancer we have so many supportive drugs for nausea vomiting any gi Mm -hmm. intolerance for your neuropathy we have a lot of drugs that you know we don't think of of a cancer patient as a cancer patient now they're able to eat maintain their weight Mm -hmm. and stay pretty healthy
1: And just for clarification, Doctor, and Janina mentioned this, she had two types of cancer which precluded her from clinical trials. Is that because you can only deal with one thing at a time?
0: No, most of the clinical trials, they're going for a specific indication. And clinical trials start with metastatic patients with most of their drugs, and then they slowly move back to the lower stages of cancer. And they only exclusions are having more than one primary. It's considered two primary uh, cancers, and that's why uh, Jana was not eligible for those studies. We are doing the um, drug that she is going to take now as first-line therapy because now it's only approved for second-line. Because it works so well in second-line, we have that study here. So if we have patients coming in with triple negative breast cancer, we can offer them that study.
1: Talk to us about other advancements, obviously, in breast cancer treatment. Because, of course, you know we continually hear about this. Um, this is being put out during October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, very important. But obviously, breast cancer happens all year round, as, as sadly everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the advancements, obviously, in the, the breast cancer treatment world.
0: Okay, breast cancer. There's many different types, and that's what I think is confusing to the general population. Mm-hmm. There is hormone sensitive where we would use hormonal drugs as well as the chemotherapy and radiation in early stages and the uh, hormonal drugs in metastatic disease. There is what we call HER2-positive drugs. This is a little receptor on the outside of the cancer cell that when it's stimulated, stimulated causes the cancer to grow and we have drugs to block that so it'll slow down the growth or abate the growth of the cancer. Then there's the triple negative that doesn't have any of these receptors and it's a tougher cancer for that reason that we don't have all of these other um, drugs that we could use with it. But it's really been expanding that we with genomics that we have a lot of other drugs one of them are the CD46 inhibitors, uh, CDK inhibitors, and these drugs work within the cell to decrease the replication of the cell, reproduction of the cell. So we have lots of studies that we're introducing these. All of these drugs have been used in the metastatic setting, and now we're introducing them in earlier stages to see if we can decrease the recurrence of cancer. We also have identified a PIC3CA mutation, that we have specific drugs for that as well, and 40% of the patients will have this mutation. Mm -hmm. Hormone positive um, patients, it's 70 to 80%, so all of those patients will have their treatment, whether um, they have chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and then take these drugs hormonal drugs afterwards to prevent recurrence. And through time, we've really evolved to which is the best drug. Tamoxifen, which is one of the older drugs, it's called a selective estrogen receptor modulator, blocks estrogen receptors so it doesn't respond to the estrogen that's in the system. And that's been around for 50 years. We've been using it for a very long time. The next group, we have are aromatase inhibitors. And there are a whole class of drugs that inhibit the production of estrogen, so we have those drugs as well and Then we have the serds, which are the selective estrogen receptor blockers that block so hard at that receptor they destroy that receptor. so we have tons and tons of hormonal drugs for those and initially, as I said, they were all in the metastatic patients. Now we've moved some to the patients that have no evidence of disease, they're cured, and we're trying to prevent their recurrence. And we have constantly having studies to see which is the best, which has the least side effects, and how long we should take all of these drugs.
1: So when people, of course, you know blithely say oh my god you know all these years they still haven't like your breast cancer there's the reason there's so many different varieties Mm -hmm. of it just like any other cancer these things take time they take a lot of of study and research and and thankfully obviously doctors like yourself and organizations like echo are, are there at the forefront of it i just want to put this question to you as well doctor we seem to hear more and more about people being diagnosed with cancer be it breast cancer or other forms of cancer is it just because we've become better at diagnosing it And it's not a case of suddenly there's like this explosion of cancer in the world. Because I think, you know, people get that little bit of a fear. They think, oh, my God, all I keep hearing about is cancer.
0: Breast cancer, mammograms are standard now. So we can identify it early. But as uh, Jenna has said, with dense breasts, we may miss stuff. So we're seeing more and more MRIs right up front in dense breasts. And the radiologists are now using computer technology to read as well. So we find things really early. And I think the awareness of breast cancer really makes women aware and that they should get screening. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have that screening.
1: It's been great talking to both of you, Janina. Thank you ever so much for sharing your story with us. We wish you continued success as your treatment continues here at ECHO. And Dr. Susan Johnson, Director of Research here at ECHO as well to you and all of your team that do this work every day that help to keep people alive. Both of you, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. thank you. And if you have recently been diagnosed with cancer or are living with a cancer diagnosis and want to find out more about the services and treatment provided by Echo, then visit their website at echoassociates.org. <laughs>
0: It's hurricane season, and your trees can be damaged by high winds. Green Valley Tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours. We offer emergency tree service by bucket, crane, and climbing for residential, commercial, and even municipalities across eastern Connecticut. From full tree removals, uprooted, or broken trees, to broken, hung up, or fractured tree limbs. Call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com.
1: Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Governor Lamont announced that he has signed a multi-state agreement for offshore wind procurement with Massachusetts and Rhode Island the first in the nation. The Memorandum of Understanding will create a pathway for a potential coordinated selection for future offshore wind projects as the industry in the U.S. and globally deals with rising costs and supply chain issues affecting the viability of many projects. Lamont said, however, he believed in offshore wind and the state's ability to make it happen
2: we're going to go out to bid again uh, early next year, and we're going to see whether the market has changed a little bit. Right now, with relatively high interest rates, some supply chain issues, you know, getting the barge up or the boat here so we can move, you know, there are some constraints. And you can say, fundamentally, I worry about the wind power industry. I don't. I think these are short-term things. We're going to keep going out to bid as we get the market right. So that's what we're going to find out in January, February of next year.
1: Katie Dykes is the Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or deep and was upbeat about the New Deal and coalition.
0: So by aligning and shopping together, we expect that we'll be able to achieve more competition in our RFPs. We'll be able to make joint selection decisions. We think this is the kind of leadership that's needed to help move the offshore wind investment future forward. I know that, of course, there's been a lot of economic challenges that have been affecting infrastructure projects all across our country, all across our economy, and the renewable energy industry is not immune to that.
1: David Ortez is is the head of government affairs northeast for Orsted, the global energy company responsible for many offshore wind farms, the redevelopment of State Pier in New London and the company behind Revolution Wind, which will power around 300,000 homes in Connecticut once built. Ortez acknowledged his industry as being challenged currently and said they still have plans to build their Revolution Wind farm.
2: I would say that we're planning to begin offshore construction in the new year and we're engaging with all of our partners to continue to discuss the challenges that we face. We have not yet taken a final investment decision on Revolution Wind.
1: The new multi-state announcement comes hard on the heels of news that energy company Avongrid have pulled out of their proposed Park City offshore wind project with the state of Connecticut and the city of Bridgeport, citing the project to be unfinanceable under its existing contracts with the state and that it intends to rebid next year. Avongrid have agreed to pay a $16 million penalty for pulling out of the deal, and it's not the only company, to renege on an offshore wind project, with South Coast Wind in Massachusetts also pulling the plug on their wind farm and agreeing to pay a $60 million penalty to the state's three electricity companies, one of which is Eversource, who also serve Connecticut and New Hampshire. Connecticut will become the first in the nation to have a mobile retail pharmacy under new legislation passed by the Lamont administration this year. The project, called In Motion, was conceived by Dr. Sandra Springer, a professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Springer says the pharmacy is for everyone, but in particular hopes it will help those living with HIV and those with substance use disorder by breaking down barriers they often have to vital health care
0: identified that without us being able to provide the services to people where they live, we're really not going to make any changes in overdose or improving HIV care and prevention care in this country. It's also a clinic and it includes community health outreach workers who go to the communities and help identify individuals and then also provide a telehealth option so that they can quickly link to a clinician to discuss either their needs, which May be HIV prevention and treatment or substance use disorder, but may also be other needs like diabetes, hypertension.
1: The new mobile pharmacy has been running a pilot program in the city of Waterbury to identify gaps, needs, and locations they can serve and will start operating on October 23rd. Connecticut is the only state in the nation to have this type of legislation allowing legal mobile retail pharmacies. Over 600 middle school students from across eastern Connecticut took a day out from school recently to learn more about manufacturing jobs in the state. The Explore Manufacturing Expo is a series of statewide roadshows aimed at connecting grades 7 to 12 with the region's manufacturing companies so they can find out more about the jobs in the industry. Deb Presby is from Ready CT, the roadshow organizer, and explained why they're targeting the younger age group.
0: As they start taking courses
2: in high school, they're thinking, okay, well, there's a CNC course over here or there's a CAD course or an engineering course. Maybe I might consider taking that because I saw that company here at the roadshow that was doing some really neat things and they told me that I needed to take math, that I needed to take some of these courses in order to be prepared for their jobs.
1: 17-year-old Kiara Barrientos is from Norwich Free Academy and knows already she wants to become a welder once she graduates. I'm actually in the YMP program it's the youth manufacturing pipeline
0: and you have to take an interview to get in there you have to write an essay and you have to have certain qualifications to get in and I dedicate a lot of my time
1: after school to go to like welding programs and I think it'll be a great career path for me manufacturing jobs also provide workers with no-cost job training and often debt-free further education